Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Steve Agee had a bizarre enough life behind the camera before he ever got his first big shot in front of it, thanks to Sarah Silverman. Agee edited footage for MTV's reality shows such as The Real World, then got a job writing for Jimmy Kimmel Live, where he's responsible for launching the famous Kimmel bit, Unnecessary Censorship. Since co-starring on the Sarah Silverman program, Agee is recognizably cast as that guy on sitcoms such as New Girl, You're the Worst, and Superstore. He currently co-hosts a podcast with E's late-night talker Busy Phillips called We're No Doctors. And A.G. has landed his first leading role in a feature film, the new indie movie Boy Band. Written and directed by the Levinson Brothers, Boy Band's about a late-90s boy band that got old and fat without realizing it. With A.G.'s bandmates played by Seth Herzog, Jordan Carlos, and Dave Hill. There's a lot to get to, so let's get to it! So, Steve Agee, thank you for welcoming me in your home. Oh, my God. Thank you for actually coming here and um, have you helping me not have you last, not things have for, have, last things first. Have you starred in a movie before, independent or otherwise? Have you been the lead? Not the lead. I've been... I'm usually the scummy stoner best friend or something. And in TV a lot, you're like that guy. I'm the same guy. I'm the homeless guy. guy. I'm... <laughs> The it's like casting agents. They read the script and they go, "Oh, we'll I'm the Steve slob." We'll I most Steve a call when I go to an audition. Most of the breakdowns of the character, my agents will send me a, a, an invitation to audition. They're like, "This is tomorrow. Here's the sides to learn. Here's a character description." It's always schlubby, fat, slob, stoner, uh, out of shape. And, um, but they're usually the funnest characters to play. Like I, you know, on Superstore, I play a guy who's, who they brought me in for one episode of Superstore. It was a Christmas episode where they hired a bunch of temps for the holidays and everyone was just betting on who would be the first temp to quit. And then all their money was on me because I, uh, had anger issues. I was dumb and it turned out at the end I had a, a meth addiction, <laughs> And so I do quit. And then I was like, well, that was a fun guest star. And then they've just brought me back. And I'm, it's unexplained why this meth head is now working at the superstore. But I mean, that's, also, that's how it almost, goes. And also almost 300 pounds. Yeah, almost. Oh, so close. How do you do that? I was just telling, I was just telling Sean, I, I had a kidney stone surgery last week, which could have been a lot better had I been five pounds lighter. I feel like you should have been able to ask the doctor for to delay it one day and then hit the sauna like the well like I, the I, UFC fighters do when they have it, to shed weight. You know, I hired a trainer and went on this keto diet two months ago, and I've lost 25 pounds. And it's at, at the very beginning, it's super easy. You lose a lot of weight because most of it's water weight, which is why a lot of wrestlers can drop weight really fast. But now that I've lost the water weight, it would probably take me like a couple weeks to lose five pounds. And I even asked the doctor, I said, 
Because oh, the backstory is there's a, a lithotripsy machine that breaks your kidney stones with oh, sound waves. Save this for your podcast. No, no, <laughs> I've talked about it a million times. But they they break up your kidney stone with sound waves from the outside. And uh, I was too big for the table, and so they had to go in my urethra with a laser and a camera and break it up. And I've had a stent for the past week. Blah blah blah. It's none of this appears in the independent film boy band. No, but looking at my character, you'd be like, yeah, that's probably a guy who gets kidney stones. <laughs> Uh, have you watched the finished product yet? I have. I liked it a lot. It, um, <laughs> you know, it's rather silly. When you do uh, uh, independent movies like this with a shoestring budget, limited uh, locations, and everything, you honestly never know how it's <laughs> how it's good. I've done a lot of movies like this where, well, first of all, they never even get released. I've done a lot of mo- you know low budget movies which have never seen the light of day. Um, and some I'm actually grateful <laughs> because of that. But um, this one turned out great. And they, you know, the Levinson brothers wrote a really funny script. And Joel, Joel is... Median. Everybody, it's a, it's a small... Bunch of comedy guys from New York and L.A. And, and Joel Levinson, who directed it, was just... He's, like, got a lot of just drive... Stuff like I, w- I would have just given up on this a long time ago. Like I'd be like, we don't have the money. Let's. St-. He just found ways to make it work, and um, yeah, it was, it was amazing. So, what were the actual '90s like for Steve Agee? I have some of my most fond memories from the '90s. I, w- I was in my 20s in the '90s. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was born in 1969, so I turned 20 in 1989. So. The 90s for me were half college and so much music. The 90s, it's, it's funny because this is about music, but for me, I, you know, you're in college and you're in your 20s and that's really when you form your identity as far as musical tastes and, sure. and TV and movies. And that was when grunge hit and, and also it was a time where Lollapalooza started and I got to see so many bands that I never would have seen ever. Like, I wasn't into rap, but I, I got to see Ice Cube. You know, I got to see Ice-T with Body Count. Um, mm. All these bands, which I now love. And um, I got to see them because of the festival boom that started in the 90s. That threw all these varied acts together. Yeah. And I had a girlfriend at the time who was also turned me on to so much music and and uh, she really, she's the one that really got me into uh, like grunge. And I, I, I saw Nirvana twice. I saw them in like before they even really broke in like 1990 or 91, New Year's Eve in San Francisco with Pearl Jam and the Chili Peppers. <laughs> Chili Peppers, a really weird lineup. But uh, yeah, I, it, most of the 90s for me, looking back, like my fondest memories are actually all musical related. Yeah. A lot of concerts, lots of concerts. Well, uh, yeah, I was, I'm two years younger, but yeah, so yeah, you get I, it. I actually love the '90s. The '80s, not so much. '80s were rough for me. My, <laughs> Although I, was, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> you actually, your parents actually made good on the threat of sending you to military school. '80s were all about was, military that, school. That it, was a thing in the movies. B- 
Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. If you don't shape up, we're going to send you to military school. And that was a theme in a lot of teen, teen 80s movies. And it never happened in the movies. But, but it my parents sent me to military school because I was a big screw up. And I went to the school where they filmed Taps. Which I, I remember seeing that movie. Taps for the uh, Millennials here was a movie. It was like a first movie for like... Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, Sean, Sean Penn, Penn, Timothy Hutton. Timothy Hutton, yeah. Um, about a bunch of kids that took over a military school because they didn't want it to shut Tom down. Tom Cruise was crazy in that movie. Yeah, he was aggro. <laughs> but that's the school I went to. It was also um, J.D. Salinger's alma mater, and it's the basis for Pensy Prep and Catcher in the Rye. Did military have school have the same effect on you as it did on JD and instead of probably it turned you yes. into like a rebellious artist well I've always told people you know my friends with kids I, I said never send your kids to a military school because I got sent there because I was a huge fuck up I can say fuck can't yeah. <laughs> okay I got sent there because I was a huge fuck up only because you're not now I was a mess <laughs> I you still weren't <laughs> I love to drink I love to party I, I didn't pay attention in school I was just like a troublemaker and so parents are like we're gonna send our kids to the school to shape them up when literally 80% of the people in military school are like the all-stars of fuck-ups like you're sending your kid to be with like 700 other versions of himself. Like, I, I was so much worse in military school. Right, it's like going to juvenile detention. Yeah, it's like going to prison. Hey, let's send a prisoner to prison. <laughs> That'll shape him up. Yeah. What did he do for you? I actually did get amazing grades when I went to uh, military school because at night you were confined to your room. There was really nothing else to do but study. Mm -hmm. And so I just retained shit. I was like, Oh my God, I, I, I'm remembering all this stuff that I'm reading in my room. And, and I got like amazing grades, but I also tried a lot of drugs for the first time. And, uh, you know, does it make you look at the military or veterans differently? Having, yeah, it, spent the, your teen years the one thing was, I was like, okay, this is not a lifestyle for me. I was like, I don't think I could because I think a lot of people go into the military because they're like, oh, they'll they'll fund my college afterwards or help me, you know, hone different skills. But when you go in before any of that, you're like, oh, my God, it's I'm waking up at like five o'clock in the morning, five thirty in the morning. I'm constantly cleaning my room. I it's so restrictive. Um, it just wasn't for me, you know. Hats off, and I thank anyone who serves this country. But oh my god, it's uh, was it? <laughs> it's, it's it's brutal. Was it a hard pivot from there to theater, or no? Because that was something. I think I had done uh, done a play before I got sent to military. No, this was all after. But I I had always wanted to be a comedian and an actor since I was like ten or eleven years old. Okay, I got a. Uh, a little transistor radio for my birthday when I was like 10 or 11. And I just remember every Sunday night, every Sunday night I would listen to the Dr. Demento syndicated radio show. It's how I found out about George Carlin, um, weird Al, just all these crazy, just a buffet of comedy. And, and that shaped my sense of humor. I mean, when I was 11, the very first album I ever bought with my own money 
was George Carlin, A Place for My Stuff. And I was a little kid. Like, my friends were all buying like pop music, like my, Michael Jackson and stuff. And I was like, I was all in with like George Carlin. And, um, and I wanted to be an actor too, because I, I loved John Ritter. I, I was a little kid watching Three's Company, had no idea what all the double entendre meant, but I just knew John Ritter was so incredibly funny. Yeah. So, you know, school for me was just a temporary roadblock for me to get out to L.A. Did you identify when Full Metal Jacket came out? Did you identify with Matthew Modine? Kind of. More, more of a pacifistic, you know. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that movie was brutal. Yeah. That was another movie. I'm like, okay, yeah, I definitely can't join the military. This is fucked up. Right, because when that came out, you must have been like 18. Yeah, I was. A, a you must have been graduating full, military school. Yeah, I think I was like 17 or 18 when that came out. I was like, nope. <laughs> I, I was like, you know, all the all the this is my, all the older this is my, men in my family, like my dad and my uncles, they and you know my grandparents, they were all in every one of the wars, and and my dad. I just remember my dad one day going, "I'm so glad." For you, there's no draft anymore, and the, there's not, yeah. there's no war happening. So, where did you, where did you first decide to act on the, that childhood dream? Um, I remember it was like my freshman year of college. I went to my parents' house, and my mom had put out this news newspaper clipping, um, from about an an audition for a Christmas carol at the local community theater. And I think my mom knew I wanted to act and do comedy and stuff. She's like, Oh, I thought you might be interested in this. I was like, Holy shit. And so I went audition. There were a ton of people there. I didn't expect anything. And I booked the part of Jacob Marley, who was uh, Scrooge's old part, you know, the ghost of Scrooge's the first, old the first ghost. I'm the sh first ghost. I'll even show you a photo. Well, I'll show it to you afterwards, but I have, you know, a photo of, there was a, a clipping in the local newspaper of me. I was like, it kind of helped feed my, my, you know, need for attention and like, oh my God, I love this. Did you ever think about stand up yourself? Oh yeah. Around this, it was around the same time that I, uh, there was a comedy club that was, I grew up in Riverside, which yeah. is which is about an hour away from here. And in there's enough show business around. Yeah, in between LA and Riverside, there's a place called Montclair. It's either Montclair or Claremont. They're right, and they're right next to each other. But there was a big mall, and there was a comedy club at the in that in that mall called the Laugh Stop, okay. which is not there anymore. But they had an open mic and. Um, I just randomly went there one night and it was like a bringer show. You like, you know, people vote on you by applause, like for the, the open mic. It was like a contest. Did you bring anybody? I brought so many of my friends and like, uh, I, I came in second because I think the other guy just brought more people and I was like, Oh my God, this is the best. This is easy. <laughs> and all my stuff was horrible. I don't even remember what I was. I just remember it was just, fucking bad like embarrassingly bad and then uh the booker was like yeah you want to come back next week and do like a regular night on like a monday or tuesday but um i did it and just tanked but i didn't tank bad enough to make me not stop or to make me stop and so 
I, I had nobody in my family that was in the arts, so I still didn't really know that this was a viable path for me to follow. Right. So I would just once in a while go do an open mic. And then I found another open mic at the Ice House in Pasadena. This is the mid-90s? Late? Yeah, this is like probably, well, this is probably like around 93. Okay. And uh, there's a Wait, guy. So it's like not like you can go on the internet and find out what there going was no on there. internet. It it was I don't even know how I found this place. Probably in the back of like the L.A. Weekly. And um, that's how I that's how I found. It. So I go and I audition, and this, there was a guy that was booking the Ice House Annex. His name was Dave McNary, and I believe he still books there. But he like took a liking to me, and like just would always let me go do spots in the Annex. And I still was never like, this is something I can make a living at. I, it was just like a hobby. It was really weird. So what were you doing for work? Um, I was still in college. I, got a, I graduated with a degree in fine art, which I have, after I graduated, I have not. No, none of these paintings <laughs> are mine. After I left college, I never picked up a paintbrush. Uh, it was just, I took photography in college, which I loved. Um, but back then it was film and I had no patience for developing. And so I stopped. And then it wasn't until I was writing on Kimmel in the early 2000s that I bought a digital camera. And now I'm like, I mean, as you see, I have like so much photo equipment in here. It, it's my biggest hobby. Um, so what was life for you like between those mid 90 open mics in the Ice House Annex and then cut to 03 in your. It was. It was really. What was that slog like? I was. Or was it a slog? It was a, definitely a slog. I was. I was always trying to figure out an artistic outlet for myself and a way to make a living doing it. Um, it started with, um, you know, I would do open mics. But when I was in college, uh, I, I. My friends, my roommate was in a band and there, it was just like that movie, that thing you do, I think that was called. The Tom Hanks. Yeah. Recreating the, like the Clark Five. Dave Clark Five. Yes. The bass player in my roommate's band broke his arm and I played bass. I just screwed around. I had a bass and, but I was never in a band and my roommate was like, Hey, uh, our, you know, our bass player broke his arm. You want to come to rehearsal with us today and just fill in and, and dick around for a while. It was all just like punk covers, you know, like buzzcocks and stuff. I was like, yeah, that'll be fun. And so I go and it just immediately clicked. We had the best time and we just, for the whole day, we're just fucking around and like ended up like in one day writing like three songs. And then the next time we got together, we wrote like two or three more songs. And I was so excited that I went, I remember going in, I was like, oh my God, I can do this. Like these songs are actually fun and they're awesome. And I went into the LA weekly version of whatever was in Riverside. I can't remember what it was called, uh, but like a, a local, a, a local zine. No, it wasn't even that. I can't, I can't even remember what it was called, but I started looking and also I was looking in the LA weekly it for, uh, places for a band to play because i was like well clearly we have to play somewhere now we can't just do this in a in a bridal shop my our guitar our drummer's parents owned a bridal shop so we would practice among all the bridal dresses and um and so i went home after like the first or second rehearsal and i saw an ad for uh 
the, the whiskey a go go. <laughs> and I called the number and like this guy answered. I still remember his name. His name was like, I think it was Mike G and Greco. Like he booked a bunch of clubs all over LA. Uh-huh. And I was like, Hey man, I got this band and, um, we're really good. We won't, I, I, I go, I would love calling. to play there. I love the cold calling. And he was like, all right, how about, uh, three weeks, Tuesday night. I was like, okay. He's like, what's the name of your band? And then our, it was in the LA weekly. And I was like, I called everybody. I'm like, we're playing at the Whiskey A Go Go. Our first show was at the fucking Whiskey A Go Go, and all our friends came out, and it was really fun. It then got really rough because then you know, it, this was back in a, a time of pay to play where you had to, you had to get tickets, you had to buy tickets from them, and then sell the tickets to your friend. It was kind of like dealing drugs. You had to then sell tickets. Right. It's to a different fill version play. of a bringer show. Exactly. It's the bringer version. Barking on the streets of Times Square for a comedy show. It's that, but with music. And so we had some rough times, but I was really into being in a band. While, you know, taking art classes, and once college ended, I was dating a girl who's a photographer, and she got accepted to California Institute of the Arts uh, up in Santa Clarita, just right outside of L.A. And so... I wanted us to both live in L.A. I thought this will be great. Like, I'll set up bass in L.A. The band can come. We can do gigs here. And um, I just had to somehow justify moving to L.A. Because my parents wouldn't be like, you can't go there just to try and be in a band. And so I enrolled. There's a music school down in Hollywood called the Musicians Institute. And um, I enrolled and I got in. Like, I think I had to... I even think I had to audition, like I had to go in and play, but I'd been playing long enough that it was fine. And uh, so I told my parents, I go, I'm going to be a musician. They're like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm like, and I justified it. I was like, look, I can go to the school and learn to read music. I can learn proper technique. And then maybe I can be a a session player, you know, play on other people's albums and stuff, which was actually not a horrible idea. Until I got there and I'm like, fuck, everyone is way better than me. And once I moved to L.A., Hollywood, I was like, there are literally like thousands upon thousands of musicians and bands here. The the odds of me making it are worse than stand up. Like it's because you're relying on other musicians. Like it was it was really disheartening to come here as a musician. But I played for years in different bands uh, the girlfriend and I broke up, she moved and I started dating a girl who's taking classes at the groundlings, mm. which is a sketch and, uh, improv theater. It's like, kind of like, kind of like second 90s, city it was the only, it was like it, second it, it city was, or the groundlings. Town, yeah. Yeah. And I was like, and I, I knew about them from when I was a teenager. I was like, Oh my God, a lot of people from SNL have come through there. I, I want to be on SNL. You know, that was a dream, you know? And so I went to a show with this girl who's taking classes there. And like the next day I enrolled in classes and then that became like my new obsession was sketch comedy and improv. Did you have to explain that to the parents? My parents, I think had just resigned to the fact that I was lost to the arts. (laughs) They were like, he's weird. This is who he is. And luckily my parents were very supportive they never understood 
what I wanted to do, but they were very supportive. They were always worried. They're like, do you need money? Like, and there were times when I had, I was like, I need to borrow some money for rent. Like, but there's like, he's happy. So, so I was at groundlings for a while and then that ended and, but did you we, make it to the Sunday company? No, I didn't even make it to Sunday company. But I did the whole four classes. Mm-hmm. I was there for years. I even worked in the theater sometimes to pay for classes and um, met a lot of my now friends there, you know. And um, it's where I got my first job in TV. I had a teacher, Melanie Graham. She was one of, the, I think, one of the original Groundlings. And she worked in reality TV as a story editor on The Real World. And she's like, she's like, AG, where are you working? She just just sounded like this really bitter woman, but she was awesome. She's like, AG, where are you working? I was like, Starbucks. And I used to bring her coffee. Like I'd bring her bags of coffee because I I loved her. I thought she was awesome. And uh, she's like, you want to work in something different? You want to do like work in TV or something? And I was like, ideally, yes. <laughs> and she's like, I can get you a job at Buna Murray, which is the company that produced Road Rules and Real World. Real World. And so I was like, great. And I thought I was going to have this great TV job. But, it, you know, I started at Low Man on the Totem Pole. I was a, a, a logger, uh-huh. which meant I would go in mostly at nights and work all night. Uh I would be the person who would get the tapes that came in from the road. The raw footage. The raw footage. And I would put it in a machine and watch it and then enter into a computer database what was happening on each tape. Time code and everything for the for the writers. Right. So that way they can find <clears throat> when does this interesting thing happen. Exactly. Oh, there was a fight here. You know, and there were, I had to type in keywords like fight, argument, drugs, and then they sex, just go and kissing. Queue it up. And then they you were the person it. who had to watch all of it so they could just queue it up. I was one of the people that watched all the raw footage. It was brutal. And it was – so Road Rules or what I started it? Road Rules mm-hmm. Australia. Okay. And then I worked on Road Rules Mexico. Mm-hmm. And then I went to the other side of the building and did Real World Seattle – which was the huge one. That was. I was uh, living in Seattle when that. Yeah. Oh, you were. That was the the yeah. one with the slap. Mm-hmm. So I worked on Real World. I mean, does stand up comedy now? And I think I, she does. Yeah, she's she's buddies with Doug Benson. Yeah. I I see her with Doug Benson <laughs> whenever we're doing shows in San Francisco. But have you um, ever copped to her that you helped? <laughs> I don't think I ever said that. <laughs> manipulate that footage. Well, he really well, did. He really did slap. And by the way. He slapped her because she said he was gay, and he is now gay. Like, years later, it's like, yeah, he's gay. <laughs> but um, uh, Christina, uh, Tom Segura's wife, mm-hmm. who's also... Uh, Pazitsky. Yeah. Pazitsky, yeah. Christina she P. was on Real World Australia. She was on my first TV show job. Really? She was part of the cast of Real World Australia. Christina was, yeah. And I have talked to her about that. Um but then, yeah, I went from real world Seattle. I went to real world Hawaii. Oh, I got sick uh-huh. of all those people. And so I left Buna Murray to a different. Are re- you, are you going to those cities or are you I'm watching po- the I'm from here? I'm strictly post. I was in 
fucking Van Nuys, California. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in like a warehouse. Basically, yeah. And then I, cave with, I got so with sick like of it. three screens watching. So sick of it that I left and went to, I had a friend that was producing on the Osbournes. Okay. So then I went and I worked on the Osbournes. I wasn't logging though. I was transcribing. Like I was watching the, the interviews and I had to write word for word what they were saying, which this was at the height of Ozzy's like being misprescribed prescription right. drugs and like so is, is when you Ozzy couldn't is... understand him and how, how it was really difficult it would be like an hour at least an hour for me to transcribe one 10 minute interview with ozzy it was a lot of sharon went down and unintelligible like i couldn't like it was fucking crazy dude so i did that and then one of my I, favorite things uh when I review Netflix specials is to put them on closed captioning. Oh yeah. Just to see what the transcribers come up with. A lot of them phone it in. I phoned <laughs> it in a lot. Cause I was just like, I can't understand him. I did that on, for the first time on purpose with, with Reggie Watts because I wanted to know how they would, Oh yeah. How they would interpret what he was doing. Did they do it? <laughs> there was a lot of unintelligible <laughs> yep. sounds. Yes. Sounds <laughs> gurbling sounds. So I left the Osbournes and then went to, and by the way, this is like the mafia. Once you get in, it's hard to get out of reality TV because people are constantly leaving to start their own show, produce their own show. So it's how I went from Buna Murray to the Osbournes. And then I left the Osbournes and I went to Temptation Island. One and two. I did that. And then I, uh, I stayed at that company and did Joe Millionaire. One and two. And are, you, are you doing stand-up? On the side? Occasionally, yeah. I'm occasionally doing stand-up. Nothing big. And then um, and then I quit. And then I, I just had a nervous breakdown. I was like, I can't keep doing reality TV. This is fucking with my head. Right. Like, it's so fucked up, and it seemed immoral. Like, right. They say, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. You're the one making the sausage. Bingo. It was fucking shitty. They're just looking for shitty people and shitty situations to highlight. And I was like, I can't take this anymore. And um, like, I quit. Slaughtering, slaughtering the cows. Yeah, I quit and had a nervous breakdown. And then uh, a few months later, I, I was already friends with Sarah Silverman. And she's like, hey, she was dating Jimmy Kimmel. She's like, hey, they have this new job at Jimmy's show. No one does this yet. She's like, it's a new thing they're trying out. They want people to watch TV. They're looking for someone because Jimmy wants to make fun of stuff in his right. monologue clips. They need someone to watch TV so and like, find uh, like clips. Un- unnecessary censorship. I was, the, I was the beginning of unnecessary censorship. Um, I did the first unnecessary censorship. And uh, it was kind of my specialty. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Um, I think they would swear here. She was like, "Do you, would you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, because I wasn't working. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll sit in a room all day and watch TV. Not thinking that I'm not watching, you know, like Lost and like cool shit. I'm watching like The View, Home Shopping Network. I'm watching a lot of the news. Like, like it was President Bush. and Yeah, it was rough, dude. Dick um, and I stuck around there for years doing that. And the reason I stuck around was because I wanted to be a writer. I was like, and I know Jimmy hires his friends and he hires within 
And so I just kept working my ass off doing stuff like unnecessary censorship. And I was also the guy that started doing uh, the fake phone calls to like Larry King and uh, or he'd be like, we're going to take a call for Jack Hanna. And then I would go into the editing bay and I would record myself on the other end of the line saying dumb shit. And Jimmy loved that kind of shit. And so he eventually made me a writer. And um, and that was really awesome. It was my first like well-paying job. And this was probably like 2005 or six. And then it didn't last long because then I, on one of our hiatuses, I did a pilot with Sarah for the Sarah Silverman program. And it was your first big on air. It was my first real acting gig. So Sarah, it, would it be fair to say Sarah Silverman changed your life? Absolutely. You and Kate Beckinsale. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think when people talk about what's going on with Kate Beckinsale over the last year, I I think it comes down to Sarah, right? Wait, what's happening with Kate Beckinsale? <laughs> well, I know they're friends. Because of Michael Sheen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, Kate was married to Michael. They have a daughter together. And then they divorced, but they're still very good friends. And then Sarah was dating Michael, was dating Michael Sheen and was like super close with Kate, <laughs> well, which is amazing. Currently in the tabloids. I don't know if it will still be, but oh, I listen to this. I don't know. But the recent thing in the tabloids has been to link her to Pete Davidson. Sarah? No, Kate. Oh, Kate Beckinsale? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. I don't know if that'll still... Well, see, you've been holed up post-surgery, so... <laughs> this must be very recently. You've been missing out, yeah. I know people... But by the time people listen to this at the end of February, it might not... I know... It might be a different thing. I know Pete's been in L.A., like, the past... Right. For, like, a week But or my two. point was that, like, if you follow Kate Beckinsale, you've noticed over the last year or two, there's a lot more comedians in her... And that orbit. started with and Sarah, started yeah, with yeah, Sarah. for sure. Um, but Sarah had a different impact with you. I did a of- play. I did a play that her friend Dave Juskow wrote. Mm-hmm. And she came to opening night and we hit it off after the play, smoked a joint together, and then we're immediately just like BFFs. And she has put literally, well, not literally anymore, but put me in everything she's ever done except for her Hulu show. I'm also just not political. <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. That's probably for. why I got canceled. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. I am the... No, because I've done pilots with her that got... <laughs> that didn't. In fact, before the Sarah Silverman program, she had done a pilot with Larry Charles, who uh, you know was a writer-producer on Seinfeld. Uh, he directed the, the Borat movie. Yeah. Um, really funny dude. He's got a new... Yeah, he's got a new thing. Dangerous. Uh, dangerous world of comedy. Dangerous world of comedy. Yeah. Fucking awesome dude. Also works on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. Really cool dude. She wrote a pilot with him. I, I want to say com- for Comedy Central, but it might even have been for HBO. And we did a table read. And this was like not long after 9-11. This was... Mm. And 9-11 actually figured into the pilot like somehow. and um, Comedy pilot. Yeah, and it was it was really good. Like Larry is a fucking genius, and um, it was like me and Sarah, Paul Rudd, um, Kevin Corrigan. I can't remember who else, but it was really it was it was really funny. But I think just people weren't ready to laugh at nine eleven yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> barely ready to laugh at it now. I was going to say, Pacero was the first to uh, to get you on those. Uh... Well, Comedy Central didn't want to hire me for that show. They were like, we don't know who this guy is. What does he do? He's been riding on Kimmel for a month. Who is this guy? And she... They weren't like the casting agents now. They're like, yeah. Tall, schlubby stoner. Oh my God! Now, now I've I've seen. She, she I've, made that happen. I've she made seen, that a she made that a, a typecast. A, oh, a, a I've character. seen breakdowns where it said we're looking for a Steve Agee type, and I've auditioned for some of those and haven't gotten some of them. Oh. I've gone out on four for four things that we're looking for a Steve Agee type, and I booked two of them, uh-huh. and I did not get two of them. What's it like with the ones that you don't get? It's humiliating. I think those but were both... But when you're in the room, do you go, I am? No, I would go... I, I would always say, I'm not sure why I have to audition <laughs> for this, because I am Stevie. the type that this is based on. Um, but yeah... Sir, the writer com- was thinking of me. Comedy Central was like, we don't know. We haven't even seen this guy. We don't know who it is. She's like... He's one. She only they hired knew who was, she, Posehn was. They knew who Posehn was because of Mr. Show. Oh, okay. They knew Sarah's sister Laura. They knew mm-hmm. Jay Johnston from Mr. Show, and Sarah just wanted to work with her friends. I mean, she's like Sandler in that way. And um, so she called me. And she's like, "Look, I'm not going to do this without you, but they really want to see you." She goes, "Put a DVD together of some of those fucking psychotic short." films that you make around your house and it's like shit that is so horrifying uh it's still floating around out there sometimes like there's stuff of there's like one video i made one day when i just woke up and my roommate was doing a show in vegas and so i had the house to myself and and i just made this video called crybaby where i'm walking around the house naked and just crying like, I'm feeding the cats, and I'm crying. I sit down, I watch TV, I'm crying. I'm playing my guitar and crying. I'm brushing my teeth, taking a shit, and cr- it's just like a whole montage of me just crying naked. That was in there. Um, really fucked that there was one video where... They didn't give you the part after watching that. I don't know. <laughs> there's, there's one there's video wrong with them. where I'm sitting on the couch watching TV, and I start getting cramps, and I'm like, oh, God. And I run to the bathroom, pull down my pants, and just take this long grunting shit and then I look back in the in the toilet and it's just a whole can of soup like the can actual can of soup and I'm just like oh that's where that it was stuff like that it was a bunch of that stuff and Comedy Central saw it and they're like alright well, fuck it whatever <laughs> like what are the odds of this show going for more than a pilot and they got picked up yeah and Brian and I became a gay couple which I think we've talked about this other places, but Brian didn't know we were a gay couple until we were on like episode two or three. (laughs) (laughs) He just thought you were really. Well, you know, with Bert and Ernie, uh, we're shooting. There's still controversy. It's ambiguous. No, this was like because the creators or some of the Sesame Street people have come back on the. We all knew what's going on. It was decided early that we were going to be a gay couple, but. In the opening credits, it says, she's like, this is Brian and Steve. They're lovers or maybe just roommates. Like, it's kind of ambiguous what she says. Did she call you like gay Steve and gay Brian? 
I think, yeah. At one point. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that that came later. Oh. We were shooting... You mean just to reinforce in Brian's head? No, you are playing gay. I'm not... It was now has been like over 10 years ago, right. so it's hard to remember. But we were shooting... I think it was the scene where I catch Brian in the bathroom masturbating to a... Like... Uh, a Victoria's Secret catalog, but he's cut out pictures of my face and put them over the girls. And he's masturbating it to, to him. And we're getting ready to shoot. And he's like, dude, are we gay? And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, yes, we're gay. <laughs> like, uh, well, that's, you know, that's very forward thinking, though. Yeah. Like, so it, it, other than a few commercials, that was my how first. How would you know if someone's gay? Like, you're just being you. Yeah. And it really, like, people really really accepted that relationship like the gay community like i would go places and they'd be like well logo in fact helped keep it going for another season they they saved they got us a third season because comedy central wanted to cut like 20 percent of our budget like usually tv shows go on you get more money right comedy central to do a third season i think it was about a million dollars an episode to make one of those shows, which at the time for Comedy Central, we were their most expensive show. And so they go, look, if you want to do a third season, you got to figure out a way to make the show for $800,000. And they tried and tried and they were like, we can't do it. And then it was Logo. The Logo Network was like, we will put in the extra $200,000, but we get first, um, we get to replay your show first before Comedy Central. Like, It'll originally air on Comedy Central, but we get to then right. do the reruns. And we were all just like, fuck yeah. And Brian and I were nominated for a, a GLAAD award, and which we lost to Ugly Betty, but what are you going to do? Um, I don't want to let, I don't want to let you let me go. <laughs> I literally, I'm, I have not left my apartment in five days because of this kidney stone surgery. So but I, I have nothing else to do. So I, however long you need to I, talk, let well, me know. I want to, I want to talk to you about Twitter. Yeah. Because Twitter is such a different place now in 2019. It's so different. Than it was in 2009. But I remember the day that you decided to. My Twitter story? Shout out all of your followers. Yeah, if and I got... Like, I'm trying to imagine someone doing that today, and it it seems like a whole nother world. It's a totally different site now. I had been on Twitter. I was one of the early people to jump on Twitter, um, and after, like, six months, I had, like, two or 3,000 followers. Back in that time, nobody had a million followers. Like it was, I think Ashton Kutcher was like the first person to get a million followers and maybe Jimmy Fallon. And other than that, it was like nobody had a million followers. And I had like 2,000, which was good at that time because it was brand new. And then I remember, I think it was Comedy Central that like for that third season, they're like, we're not even going to do advertising for you guys. And so Sarah joined Twitter to like get the word out. And I, I remember in like, like overnight she had like 5,000 followers and I was so offended. I was like, I've been on here for six fucking months. And, I, <laughs> and I'm like, of course that's Sarah Silverman. Right. I'm nobody. And, uh, and so 
This was on like a Sunday or something, and I go. Yes, it was on a. And I go. It was a weekend. I go. I know what I'll do. I'll tweet that if I get five thousand followers by Friday, I will then read every single follower's name in a live streaming video on Saturday. And I tweeted it, and like I started getting a few followers, not many. And then uh, my friend Eric texted me. He's like, "Dude, I did the math." He goes. If you got like 5,000 followers and you read them at a pace of like such and such amount of names every minute, Mm -hmm. he goes, it would take you like five hours. And I go, oh, I don't want to do that. (laughs) And so I stopped mentioning it. I left that tweet up, but I'm like, I'm not going to mention this anymore. And then James Gunn saw it and retweeted it and started going up. A little bit more. James wasn't the James that he is now. He had, I think, only done Slither at that point. And so, but Rain Wilson saw it. Rain was friends with James even pre-Super because James was married to Jenna Fisher. And so James knew everybody in the office. And so Rain saw that and Rain retweeted. And then my numbers really started going up fast. And I was like, oh, fuck, I'm going to have way more than 5,000 followers by Friday. And I'm like, uh, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I don't care. And then that Friday, and I was giving to the end of the day on Friday, Mm -hmm. that Friday, randomly, Oprah did a show about Twitter and she interviewed Jimmy Fallon. She interviewed Ashton Kutcher and she signed up for Twitter. Oprah started her account on that day. Oh, right. Of course. The day that she talks about it, she would... And when Use rain leverage and when rain retweeted my Twitter stunt mm-hmm. earlier in the week, someone at Twitter just automatically put me on the page where when you join up, it's like, here's a group of people we recommend you follow and you were already following them and you have to unclick their names to unfollow them. And no one ever did that. So I, when people would I sign up that, that yeah, it would that, automatically, there's like 20 people. And it would be, you would just, you know, because if you sign up and you're not following anyone, there's, you have no feed. So it's like, here's 20 people that you're automatically following. Oh, like buying a video game console and yeah, here's your, here's your starter kit. And so that was making my numbers go up and then fucking Oprah got a Twitter account and every fucking housewife in America signed up for fucking Twitter. And in one day I got like. 10,000 fucking followers. Like, it was bananas. I had to literally put my account on lock so I wouldn't get any more followers that day. So how many did you have when you hit lock? So at the end of the day, I had like, I don't know, 10 or 12,000. Like, I had like a lot of followers. Way more than I was aiming for. And so... I mean, in today's world, 10 or 12,000 doesn't seem like that many. No. And then um, the next day, I did the live feed and... Uh, I forget what service I use, but I sat in my apartment and like rain called in. I you know, I took phone calls, rain called in, James came over and visited and I just had different friends come hang out and it took like eight, eight hours, eight or nine hours. I think it took, it was the whole fucking day. Did you take a break or no, I just kept doing it. I, people would bring me food and. Or I'd go to the bathroom, and then That's if I had a friend saying, over, yeah. my friend would, my friends would read the names. Um, and then, uh, and then after that day, I put took my thing off unlock, and like I was getting like, you know, ten thousand followers a day, 
like for a couple years. <laughs> like I, I, I was one of the early people to hit a million followers. I got a million Twitter followers. And then one day I just, and it was all because you just wanted to get 5,000. Yeah. Be yeah. As cool as Sarah. Yeah. And then, um, I just got so tired of, I was like, look, I have a million followers. It's true. But like, none of them know who I am. They don't even realize they're following me. And I am sick and tired of at least 10 times a day getting tweets at me going, who the fuck are you? And why am I fucking following you? You are not fucking funny. Who the, f like, just like really mean shit that I was not asking for. And so I just deleted my account one day and I was like, look, I'm spending way too much time on Twitter. Anyway, I need to get some shit done. And, uh, what was the breaking point? It was that kind of shit. It was people going, who the fuck are you? Unfunny. Fuck. And I was just, and it was all housewives, but it wasn't like a specific day or it probably just... was, it probably was, but I was just like, and it'd been something I'd been wanting to do. I was like, I need, I'm too obsessed. Like anytime I would do something, I'd tweet about it. And then, um, I deleted the account. And then like a week later, James said to me, he's like, dude, did you delete your Twitter account? I go, yeah, best thing I ever did. He goes, you fucking idiot. He goes, you could have sold your Twitter account because you had a million followers. You could have sold it. He's like, there are corporations out there that would have bought it just for the million followers. You could have made a shitload of money on it. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah. He goes, you should try and get it back. And I tried and they're like, no. Nope. I think now you can actually, if you delete your account, you can get it back. But back then they're like, nope, you have to start a new account. Did you ever? I went and saw Scott Pilgrim. I went to the premiere of Scott Pilgrim. And I really love that movie. Yeah. And afterwards... Uh, I saw Edgar and I said, man, I love that movie. I go, first thing I wanted to do as soon as it was over was tweet about it. I go, but I deleted my Twitter or my Twitter, my Twitter. And Edgar's like, I ah, just make a new one. And I go, oh yeah. And so I started a new Twitter account and then it's just been slow going, but it's, I have like 130,000 followers or something right now. And I'm like, I'm cool with that because they're all people who like want to be following me, right. you know. But yeah, it's not the same. I'm not on it as much now. It's mostly promotional. I mean, stuff. that's one of the other things that's happened while you've been recuperating from surgery is uh, people have been taking a renewed look at joke thieves. Who, Fuck Jerry, yeah, yeah, and the fat Jew, and yeah, places that have built up millions of followers and then cashed plagiarizer cashed yeah. in on it, but all by stealing other people's. I content. can't. I still, I, I, I'm blown away. You had away. a million followers and you didn't cash it. <laughs> I, I should have cashed in. But part of, and then actually, been, I wouldn't have felt. You could have had your own merch. and I wouldn't have felt as bad because I would, would have been selling people that weren't following me to be following me. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't even have noticed. <laughs> they wouldn't have been like, hey, I was following Steve. They would have been like, who? <laughs> so I could have done that. But like, I'm blown away by it that whole fuck Jerry thing. And it's so shitty that they make money off other people's creativity. It's insane. Well, you know, we're from the same generation. So it's, it feels like a generational shift in terms of the people who've grown up with the internet. Don't think anything of yeah. reposting, sharing, 
it's all just it's out there for you, just for you to pass on everything's free man it's free yeah it's, it's there's not labor involved it's a or they don't think about the labor involved in the work I it can't. I, I feel like you should be. Someone should be able to sue fuck Jerry, like for using one of their tweets or memes mm-hmm. to make money off, like KFC or something. Like you should be able to go. I'm suing you for thirty thousand dollars because you got that money from my tweet. Like it seems like a no brainer. Well, I mean, it, this whole I aggregate feel like it, thing. I feel like is, it rarely happens, even in regular show business, where you. You'll see someone get sued over a TV show idea yeah. or or a screenplay. Yeah, and it feels like even those lawsuits don't go the way. Yeah, you might hope they would. It's so weird. Would. Artists so it's, really have it fucking hard, man. It's 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 so crazy. You know, some of these people, these comedians that these these guys are, you know, plagiarizing, just make no money. They're working, they have roommates, they work at, you know, the bustling tables at restaurants and all they have is their creative outlet on Twitter, or, you know, Facebook or right. Instagram. And they're told if you do that, you might get seen by a late night talk show. Yeah. Or... Oh, it's so lame. Fuck, fuck, Jerry. <laughs> so how do you approach social media now? Uh, I am honestly all about Instagram. I mean, because photography is my hobby. So I love Instagram. It's for me it's just it's basically my portfolio. I just am like posting photos. Eventually I want to do a book and a, a gallery showing. Um So how do you feel when when people take the photos and It's lame and didn't one of those people not fuck Jerry, but somebody else didn't somebody else like have an art exhibit of their Instagrams, but all the photos were like other people's photos. I wouldn't doubt that. With their own Instagram captions. I wouldn't doubt that. That's fucking horrible. Um, it hasn't been a problem for me because I'm usually not posting like meme type photos. Like it's literally like landscapes or portraits. So it's like, fuck, Jerry's not going to take one of my sunset photo or a picture of the Griffith Observatory. And they're like, I'm not going to make money off this guy's shit. Um, it's just an outlet for me. Um, so I'm on Instagram all the time. Twitter, I check like, I usually check it first thing in the morning just to see if anyone's gone to jail. <laughs> like, oh, someone just got subpoenaed. That makes me feel better. Um Catch up on politics. And every now and then I'll think Mm -hmm. of something funny to say and I'll post it. But it's usually Twitter is me just, like I said, I go on in the morning, look to see what's happened. Someone will inevitably have uh, retweeted some bullshit that Donald Trump has said. And then I just go to his original tweet and it's just me going, fuck you. Twitter is just me going, fuck you to Trump every fucking day. And don't go looking because I usually after a day or two just delete it because I'm like, I don't want someone to come to my Twitter and be like, oh, I like this comedian. What's it? And just saying, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. So I usually just delete him after a day. Did you have any talks with James after what happened with him and his Yeah, it's ridiculous. You know, it's... I I feel... I don't know how much of any of this is true or not, but I feel if Roseanne hadn't have been fired, he probably wouldn't have been fired. You know, but I think Disney was feeling pressured. 
I think it's shitty that they caved to that pressure because this these these were tweets that James had acknowledged years ago and apologized for. I personally think he should have deleted them <laughs> when they came up originally. He, he should have been like, "I shouldn't have done this. I'm sorry," and deleted them. Right, because it's happening. It's it's happening to more and more people. Kevin Hart with the Oscars. And- yeah, and I feel like he was just like, "I apologized." If I delete these, it's just going to make me look like, okay, I'm sorry. Here are you have like he's trying to make other people happy, which you know he should have just deleted them in the first place. This wouldn't have happened, but. It, I usually it's, do that. It's with, ridiculous. I, my policy is if people didn't like my tweet, <laughs> oh yeah, I'd me probably, too. I should probably take it down. If I'm like, oh, this has three likes, I usually delete it. But I was never. I figure it's problematic. If nobody <laughs> likes it, it must be there must be something horrible with it. I was never. <laughs> I don't leave it up. <laughs> never concerned about James when that happened. I was, I was like, this really sucks because he should have been able to finish the third movie and wrapped it all up. Um, but professionally, I was like, this isn't going to hurt him. And sure enough, it didn't. You know, as soon as he was out of his contract with Disney, Warner Brothers was like, we'll let you do anything you want. Yeah. Which I knew was going to happen. For comedians, though, with social media, is it has it gone from this place where you can yeah. have fun and do stunts? And yeah, yeah. To Just being is there, a bummer. Was, is there value for comedians on social media now? Not I, I, don't, I don't feel like there is. I feel like we're at a point now where I don't think new people are signing up for Twitter. I don't think there's a rush to sign up for Twitter. So I don't think a lot of people are getting new followers. I think people are just tweeting to the people who are already following them, which is weird because, you know, anytime I post a lot of anti-Trump, you know, anti-NRA stuff, I don't know why I'm doing it because I'm already I'm tweeting to the people who already feel the same as me. I'm tweeting something that someone's going to look at and go, yeah, like I'm not going to change anyone's mind. Like no right wingers are going to be like, what? What did he fucking say? Like they're not following me. So it's like it's not going to cost you any gigs because you're not no, on the road. No, you, you are sh- fucking shouting into a void. Like, you know, it, I mean, it's fine if you're just keeping your current fans happy. It's mm-hmm. great to play, you know, post jokes and let people know when you're coming to their town to do stand up. It's still useful. But socially, you know, uh, po- social politically, socio politically, you're not, I feel like, like you're not changing minds or anything because you're usually tweeting to people who feel the same way as you. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm kind of like you in terms of Twitter and Facebook. I go to out of obligation. Mm-hmm. Instagram, I go to when I see something cool, yeah, yeah. cool or fun yeah. and want to share it as a photo or, yeah. vi- or a short video. With now that that's why when I when Snapchat's I when stories I function. that's why when I tweet like "fuck you" to Trump, I don't do it in a retweet on my own feed because I'm like. Yeah, I'm tweeting this to people who already feel the same way. Like, I want to go into Trump's feed and write, fuck you. So when one of his followers, like, I don't know, know why I'm trying to stir up a hornet's nest. Like, it, I'm solving nothing. I'm literally just hoping Trump sees. I, my hope is always to get his attention. I just want him to go, hey, <laughs> you know, that's all I want. You really should have kept that account because then 
when I, Trump I, signed I, up, he would have followed you. Yeah. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> he would have automatically followed you. <laughs> and I would have gotten in at least one good jab before oh. he, he blocked me. Well, <laughs> as Edgar said, you can always start again. You can. That's the good thing. There's a, you know, you always start with a clean slate. Well, Steve, thank you so much. Uh, dude, thanks this for, is, thanks is, for coming here. A treat. <laughs> thanks, man. I'm glad you came here. I was just, I'm, I'm constantly, you know, even though I'm feeling good other than when I pee because of the stent in, in my kidney, I'm paranoid to leave the apartment because I'm like, what if I get somewhere and immediately have to take a, cause it is making me have to pee a lot more. I say as I drink some more coffee. Well, I'm glad we recorded this. So now when it airs, you can go, oh, I feel so much better now than then. Oh, I can't wait. No, it's everything now is going to be post-stent and pre-stent. P.S. <laughs> P.S. I love you, Steve. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.